We're getting ready to launch into Psalm 8, which is a fabulous psalm. I mean, of which psalm would you not say that? I guess, great point. But this is a particularly significant psalm uh, to people. And just as hymns, oh, what hymn would you say is a bad hymn? Well, maybe the one that you don't particularly like. But when you find out that a hymn is someone else's that you like or respect, favorite hymn, then you're inclined to sing it with a little bit more feeling, a little bit more interest. Like, I wonder what it was that made that hymn his favorite. So many of you know David Leake. That's his favorite hymn that we just sang. And you ought to ask him, why is that your favorite hymn? And it's a great story of how God used that hymn in his life in a powerful way during his college years um, to change his life. So I've I can't sing that hymn now without thinking of David, and I'm grateful for that. And there may be somebody in here, well, let's just find out. Is anyone here ready to say, Psalm 8 is my favorite psalm of all the psalms? No, really? Really? Okay. I'm, I'm guessing that that was a legit answer. No, really, it is my favorite psalm. Of all. So knowing that, we're all more inclined to dig to find out, now why? What, what have I missed? in Psalm 8 that has not made that my favorite psalm. I don't even think I could have told you what Psalm 8 was about. So we need to do a little work to find out how that could be someone's favorite psalm. And I don't know if it'll be your favorite after we look at it this morning, but I think it will be more on your radar than it was before we came together to look at Psalm 8. So turn with me to Psalm 8, and then we will look at it in greater detail after we read it together. Let's give attention to the Word of God, and let's pray. Father, as George is want to do, I also want to do. I want to have us pray that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things out of your law. In Jesus' name, amen. To the choir master, according to the Getith, a psalm of David, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. Great psalm. It's got a little beginning there that we skip over very often, very, very quickly. I think it's better not to skip over what is called the the superscription. The superscription is that part of the psalm. It's written above the body in our English Bibles. It doesn't get a verse number, but in the Hebrew Bible, it does get a verse number. And it is probably part of the original text so that we can trust these superscriptions. And the reason they're valuable is because often that they will tell us something about the life circumstance of the author 
at the time of the writing. And again, as we found out with favorite hymn, why is that your favorite hymn? When we find out that a hymn is someone's favorite, we're more inclined to enjoy it ourselves, to pay attention to it ourselves. When we find out the life circumstance out of which a particular psalm arose, it, it also can sharpen our interest in the psalm. It can give us some clues as to how better to interpret it. So if we're looking at 150 psalms, nearly half of them are written by David. And particularly in the 50s, I once did a series on David in his 50s. And I think he was around 50 when these psalms were written. Uh, but more importantly, it's Psalm 50, Psalm 51, 52, 53. And you look at those psalms and the, many of them have superscriptions that will tell us something about the life circumstances of King David when he was writing that particular psalm. So we look at this superscription and we, uh, we learn a few things um, from that too. Uh, the overall concept of the psalm, including the superscription, and I, I look back just to make sure I got my uh, slides are lined up with where I am. Our dignity from His Majesty. That's, I think, a good title for Psalm 8. The question can become, is it, is it uh, more about our dignity or more about His Majesty? And we say, well, we've already answered that by the hymn choice that Calvin had, which perfect hymn choice. And Calvin, did you do that all by yourself? Did you just come up with it? Where is Calvin? He's gone. Oh, okay. No? Someone recommended it? It wasn't, I didn't recommend it. I would have, but I, I didn't know. that. I, I thought, well, I don't pick the hymn anymore. Anyway, perfect choice. You could say that it then the answer is it's about God's majesty because the hymn is how great thou art. And therefore, it's, uh, it's really about God. All right, now we're going to, this is all by way of introduction into the hymn, and there's a lot of good stuff here. Before we stick our finger on one particular verse, we're looking at the whole psalm. There is a debate between two authors that I really admire about which is more important, what we think about God or what God thinks about us. You know these quotes because they're pretty famous, or some of you do anyway. If you've taken a theology course in a seminary somewhere, many of those theology courses will open with a reference to A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy. This is how A.W. Tozer, who was a Christian Missionary Alliance pastor, but a very uh, wise man, a very well-educated, self-educated man, read widely, very articulate. This is what he had to say at the beginning, the very beginning of his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than, the, than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. I don't think anybody's heresy meter goes off immediately when we read that. Go, that. That's not true. That can't be right. No, that's not it. But somebody's did. Somebody reading 
Tozier's thoughts at about the time that Tozier wrote them. And this is tough. When the Titans clash, C.S. Lewis wrote this in his essay, The Weight of Glory, in 1941. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. It is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us who really chooses shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son, it seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. All right. Doesn't sound like heresy either exactly. It's plausible. It makes sense. Yeah, it's much more important what God thinks about us than what we think about God. What was Tozer thinking? And yet you go, well, no, on the other hand, I can see Tozer's point. I can see where he's coming from. The clash of the titans, you know. Are you a C.S. Lewis person or an A.W. Tozer person? Well, C.S. Lewis is more famous, so you might not be quite sure there. But uh, do I have to choose? Is there really one right, one wrong? Enter into the fray, the greater titan, who separates the warring parties and says, now, now, boys, I'm older than either one of you, and let me tell you how it is. This is how I started my most important book. These are the first words that you read when you come to the Institutes of the Christian Religion, written by John Calvin. Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected together by many ties, it is not easy to determine which of the two precedes and gives birth to the other. For in the first place, no man can survey himself without forthwith turning his thoughts towards the God in whom he lives and moves, because it's perfectly obvious that the endowments which we possess cannot possibly be from ourselves, nay, that our very being is nothing else than subsistence in God alone. But in the second place, those blessings which unceasingly distill to us from heaven are like streams conducting us to the fountain. Here again, the infinitude of good which resides in God becomes more apparent from our poverty. In particular, the miserable ruin into which the revolt of the first man has plunged us, compels us to turn our eyes upward. The title of this little first section is, Without Knowledge of Self, There Is No Knowledge of God. And yet he'll go on to say, but without knowledge of God, there's no true knowledge of self. So for Calvin, it's a little bit of a chicken or an egg sort of point about which comes first, our true knowledge of self, which leads us to a knowledge of God, or a true knowledge of God that leads us to a true knowledge of ourselves. And they are inextricably intertwined. So I'm not picking between A.W. Tozer and C.S. Lewis. And I don't think that this psalm does either exactly. 
For though the psalm does begin and end with a clear emphasis on the majesty of God, packaged in the middle of that sandwich is a ton of meat on the dignity of humanity. So we could come either way at this thing and we could be right. Our heresy meters ought not to go beep, 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 beep. No, we ought to be okay if we declare that Scripture clearly asserts the majesty of God and Scripture clearly asserts the dignity of humanity. And if we wonder where in Scripture we need wonder no longer, you can always from here henceforth and forevermore just turn to Psalm 8 and it'll answer that question. It'll come right back to that question. So, uh, if we can slip on to our, our next slide, we'll see uh, the superscription. And then we'll get to the psalm. So the superscription, again, that part of the material, it's not versified in our English Bibles, but it's there. It says it's to the choir master. And what does that mean? Well, you'll know that, and we're going to look ahead. We'll see it's a psalm of David. That helps us. David organized the Levites in Israel. They no longer needed, they weren't going to need soon thereafter to carry all of the divine furniture of the tabernacle from place to place. Now they were settled. They had now established a central sanctuary in the city of David, which is Jerusalem. Bethlehem right outside refers to his birth. But David's city par excellence is Jerusalem. He conquered it took it over from the Jebusites and brought the, the tabernacle there and said, now I want to build a house for the Almighty here. And we all know that God said, no, you're not the one to build this house. You're a man of bloodshed, but your son will build this house. And so David spent the last part of his life gathering contributions for this magnificent temple, giving his son advice about how he would put it together, and then it was up to Solomon to build the temple of the Lord. Well, you don't need as many Levites to carry stuff and all that, well, they employed the Levites at that point in being singers, songwriters in Israel, putting together the Psalter, being able to sing in worship of God. Not only that they would, but that they would be able to encourage God's people to sing. And so we still today have that idea that we have a choir master. Thank you very much, Calvin. We have trained singers who devote a great deal of practice time to that. Last night, for example, and every Wednesday night and other times as well, they're here Sunday after Sunday, and their singing encourages us to sing more loudly, more intelligently, more thoughtfully about how great our God is. So David is saying, this is for the choir master. Hey, put this in the new Second Prez hymnal. I want this to be part of, and he didn't say Second Prez. He said the temple uh, in the new hymnal that Israel's going to have, this Psalter thing that we're compiling, make sure this one gets in there. David, well, we'll come to David in a moment. So to the choir master, this is for you. Add this to our repertoire. According to Gittith or Gittith or what does that mean? Best thing for me to say at this point um, to maintain whatever credibility I have is, I don't know. I'm not quite sure what it means. But I can give you at least two alternatives, and then you can choose between them. As Gomer Pyle always would choose in multiple choice, true-false test, he would bang his two fingers on the desk, and the one that hurt the more, that was the right answer. And so he would say, that one's true, Sergeant Carter. And that, so you, could just, you can do that and decide between these two. One, it might mean this is according to the wine press song. Gittith, Gittith is wine press. So this is the song of the wine press. And you all know that one, right? 
Well, back then, they all did. Like, oh, yeah, the wine press song, the one we sing all the time at the grape harvest, the one, yeah, they, oh, that's a great one. And so that, it's, I've envisioned it to that tune. And maybe it was even one of David's tunes. I don't know. He was a skilled musician. It might have been one of his tunes. But for whatever reason, he said, this one goes to the tune of the wine press. And it's not the only psalm in the Psalter that has that instruction. There are two other psalms that are according to Giddeth as well. So maybe that's it. We don't know what that tune was. We don't know much more about it. Others have said, no. There's another possibility. Uh, Giddeth refers to Gath, the Philistine city from whence Goliath came. And you'll immediately think, they're not going to sing any of Goliath's favorite hits in the temple of Israel, so that can't be it. But there are noted scholars that would say, no, it could be, because not just Goliath came from Gath, but a whole bunch of David's most loyal household guard came from Gath. The Gittites were with him when Absalom rebelled against him and made him have to flee Jerusalem. He had to get out of town because his son was coming to kill him and to take over the kingdom. Hard to believe, but yes, that was happening. And those that remained loyally at his side were the Gittites. So it could be that it's referring, according to the Gittites, it could be, uh, or Gitteth, all things Gath, could be referring to um, an instrument pattern that was common in Gath. It could be referring to a musical style that was common in Gath. It could be referring to a particular tune that was known in Gath. It could be that as well. I don't get anything. They both hurt when I'm stopping doing that. That's not good. But you pick one and come up with it. That's what that's what's being said. And it would be cool if we knew more of these liturgical directions that are given in the superscriptions, but we don't really, so we move on. It's a Psalm of David. As, as I already told you, about half of them are, half of the 150, 73 of them. And a bunch of them have superscriptions. The benefit of our knowing that is that it's going to help us understand when David talks about his son or son of man or he has in view a royal figure, he's looking beyond himself. As one hymn puts it, and theologians have put it for many years, great David is looking ahead to his even greater son. This psalm is messianic. Maybe not in exactly the strictest of senses as some others are. Psalm 2 that we looked at last time. But it is messianic as is every psalm. They all are going to point ultimately to King Jesus. But this one definitely does because great David is looking ahead to his greater son. We wonder how is it that David could have such boldness in Psalm 51 to declare that he is forgiven by the Lord, that he knows that he's restored into the joy of God's salvation. How could he know that? Because he, like us, uh, or he like we, or as, never mind, because he was looking ahead to one who would be his savior. He knew that the blood of bulls and goats couldn't atone for his horrible sins against Bathsheba and against Uriah the Hittite. He knew that he needed something more substantial than the blood of an animal. He was looking ahead to that seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, that seed of the woman who was also the seed of Abraham, the seed of Isaac, and the seed of Jacob. He was looking ahead to that one who was his own seed. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he drops in awe before God. Who am I and what is my house that you should bring me this far? For God had just said to him, David, you're not the one to build a house for me, but I will build a house for you. And you will never lack for a son to sit upon your throne. 
Your dynasty will never end. I took the kingship away from Saul. I'll never take it away from your house. David understood that that wasn't just talking about an eternal succession of mediocre human kings sprinkled in with a few good ones every once in a while. No, he knew that it was referring ultimately to one great one, that as great as David was, he was looking at his even greater son who would be his savior, not just his king, who would be his priest according to the order of Melchizedek, who was greater than Levi by far and greater than Aaron. He was looking ahead to that prophet like Moses who was anointed that way. So anointed, Hebrew for anointed is Messiah. Greek for anointed is Christ. David was looking ahead to the one who was anointed as prophet and priest and king and spoke of him in the Psalms, in Psalm 110, in Psalm 2. So throughout when we see in the Psalms this picture of great David's greater sons, it reminds us Psalm 8 is about Jesus. So we need to appreciate that because we're about Jesus, right? That's what matters to us most of all is our relationship with Jesus. And we are studying the scriptures, searching the scriptures, and aiming Bible studies year after year after year after year in order not so much that we would have better head knowledge of the Bible, but in order that we might know Jesus better. The superscription of the psalm then sets us up. We get where it comes from and what it's for. It's going to be part of the worship of Israel and the worship of the people of God throughout the centuries. This psalm, David's saying, put it in. And David was a prophet. Scripture is explicit in that. He's speaking under inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. He says it's going to be according to Giddeth, whatever that means. Oh, well. Uh, And it's going to be a psalm from David. Let's get to the psalm and see what does this psalm mean going to uh, tell us. Oh, well, there you go. There was a, I didn't do a very good job, Gordon, of telling you where to, when to push. All right, Psalm 8. Um, there was, actually, back up if you can, uh, Gordon, if we can back up. Let's look at the overview of the psalm. I may have not looked back fast enough to see that it was there. That's it, huh? Okay. Uh, not in the right order quite, but anyway. Oh, all right, now then we'll go ahead to the psalm. Superscription, yep, yep, Psalm 8, there we go. Now we got the overview, my bad, this is it. We're right where we're supposed to be, so sorry. Um, It's about um, God's majesty, divine majesty, verses 1 and 2. That's part of a sandwich I alluded to earlier. I gave that analogy of two pieces of bread encasing a we-have-the-meats kind of sandwich with a bunch of stuff in the middle, Verses 3 through 8 are that meat, and they refer to, uh, go ahead and go with that, human dignity in um, verses 3 through 8. And then the second part of the sandwich, we've got two pieces of bread, and closing this is verse 9. And the reason I call it a sandwich like that is that it uses this rhetorical device of inclusio um, in order to show us what parts of, um, of this psalm set up are set apart from the other psalms on either side of it so O lord our lord how majestic is your name in all the earth that's how the psalm begins verse 9 O lord our lord how majestic is your name in all the earth i brought it right back to where i started from you got two bookends and you've got books in the middle you got two pieces of bread you got a sandwich in the middle and that's the way that psalm 8 is laid out 
So we're going to look at those three parts. That's where we're heading, and we're going to start with the first piece of bread, the first part, uh, verses um, 1 and 2 on the divine majesty. So, oh, back up one time. I forgot to read my very clever, um, oh, gosh, that's hard. You've got to go through all this again. Sorry. Um, there we go. Now one more. There we go. I was going to read that. Human dignity begins and ends with divine majesty. That is literally true in this psalm. Verses 1 and 2 talk about divine majesty. Verse 9 talks about divine majesty. And in the middle, having been begun by divine majesty and having ended with divine majesty, we get human dignity. So, I think the psalm is especially about human dignity, even more than divine majesty. But you can't really talk meaningfully about human dignity apart from divine majesty. If there is no God who is majestic over all the earth, then human beings aren't that much. We may pride ourselves into thinking we're big deals, but we're really not. In the broad scope of things, your life is how long in the course of how long planet earth has been here? Some, anybody approaching 90? Anybody almost to 100 here? Well, whoop-de-doo, because 100's diddly squat in the view of that. Anybody here really, really brilliant? You've, you've got a cure for cancer. You've got it in your back pocket. You're waiting until the right time to spring it on us. Or you've done something else just really, really cool. You've, you know, you're an athlete better than LeBron James. Or, you know, we haven't seen it yet. Well, great for you. But there's going to be somebody greater coming along. And in the broad scope of things, it's not that big a deal. Without God saying we're significant, I'm not sure that you could build a great case that we have any meaning or significance. We appeared right along with a, we're a more advanced form of amoeba, and we're going to exit this stage at some point when our evolutionary function is gone and we'll be out of here. No, we ground our sense of meaning and purpose and dignity and worth in a majestic God who gave us that as a gift. And we'll see more about that in a minute. All right, so beginning and end of human dignity is divine majesty. All right, we can go to the next one. All right, let's talk about divine majesty. You'll notice how this psalmist uses a lot of couplets all through this place. And we'll see those couplets uh, in right here at the very beginning, in the first two verses, uh, redeemer and king. And I see that couplet here in the two ways that the psalmist speaks about God. I hope you notice the difference. You might not. O Lord, our Lord. If you'll look carefully at your copy of the scriptures as you read, O Lord, our Lord, you'll notice not just the difference between O and our, but the difference between how Lord is spelled. In the ESV, the NIV, most translations, there's a distinction. Two different Hebrew words are used for God there. One is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord. And the other is capital L, Lowercase, O-R-D, Lord. Two different words. The first, capitals all the way through, is the way that the English translators separate the name for God that is his personal name, his covenantal name, his relationship name, and that is Yahweh, probably the best way to render it, but a generation ago or a hundred years ago, certainly, people rendered it as Jehovah, in fact, Jehovah itself, as a name for God, reflects this difference between all caps Lord and only initial cap Lord, because the initial cap uh, Lord word is Adonai, 
And many of you have heard that word in the Michael Card song, uh, sung by Amy Grant and Michael Card uh, about Adonai. It means Lord or King or Sovereign. It's the master. It's the one in charge. It refers to the function of our God. And the other one is the personal name for God that Exodus 3 talks about. God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. Tell them I am sent you. It's derived from the Hebrew word to be. So God's eternal existence is involved in there. When Jesus said, I am, before Abraham was, I am, no wonder they picked up stones to stone him because it would have been blasphemy unless it were true, which it was true. But um, so that name for God was too holy for the Jews to pronounce. In later centuries, the Jews decided that the best way to keep the Ten Commandments was to make them so tightly circumscribed that, you know, it, it wasn't as difficult. So do not take the name of the Lord your God, the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain, to no purpose. Gosh, how are we ever going to do that? I know how we can do that. Let's just never say the name. If we never say the name, if it is that one who cannot be named, to twist Harry Potter stuff completely, but if we never say the name, it'll be the ineffable name and we'll get away with it. So what we'll do is we'll take the consonants of Yahweh and we'll put the vowels of Adonai in there, and it comes out Jehovah. And so it had a, Jew, a Jewish beginning for that pronunciation, but that's not the Hebrew word there. And it was really a circumlocution. We're trying to get around how to say the word uh, so that we can keep the Ten Commandments. That's why we did it. Well, no, that's not a good reason. That's not how you keep that commandment. You honor the Lord, our personal relationship, God, by always using his name with respect and to a purpose rather than as a cuss word or flippant or just thrown out there. So we ought not to do that. O Lord, O Yahweh, O God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, O distinctively Israelite God, the God of Israel, not the God of Moab or the God of Egypt or the God of the Canaanite nations. No, those gods are false gods. Only Yahweh is the one true and living God. So they had the same problem with particularity that we Christians do today when we say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. People don't like that. That sounds very politically incorrect. You shouldn't say that. Well, ancient Israel had that same problem. No, And it is politically incorrect, but what if it's true? That there is only one true and living God. In fact, it must be true by even our understanding of God, that being greater than which cannot be conceived. There can only be one God. And so, which one is it? it? It's our God. And we're not boasting about that. We're just saying that is the one God who actually exists, and he's revealed himself in space and time and history, and ultimately in his son, Jesus. In fact, if you think, well, Yahweh doesn't sound very personal to me. I don't want to use that word in my worship of God. And Adonai and these other things, I'll give you a substitute word. It's Jesus. Jesus claims all through the New Testament to be Yahweh. He is the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, we worship him. O Lord, our Lord, our Adonai, our Master, you are our Redeemer, because that's the context in which God revealed himself as Yahweh to the people. When he came to Moses, he said, I'm going to redeem my people out of slavery in Egypt. And so, he's a Redeemer, but he's also the King. So, all glory, laud, and honor to thee, Redeemer King, from whom the lips of children made sweet hosannas ring. Thou art the son of David, thou Israel's 
Greater Son. I've, I've gone beyond my ability, Calvin. I just blanked on the rest of all glory, laud, and honor. But it's talking about Redeemer, King, and that's a contrast that we have here. O Lord, our Lord, Redeemer, King. Earth and heavens also are coupled here. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's the two terms that are used for everything that is, for the entire universe, for all that has been created. In the beginning, there was God who cannot have a beginning or an end. He is that necessary being who cannot not exist. And then that God created the heavens and the earth. He is over both of them. So we're talking majesty right here. He is majestic um, beyond our comprehension. And then next couplet is infants and enemies. Quite a contrast there. We got babies and infants, and then we got enemies at the, in verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, on the one hand, you have established strength because of your foes, the enemy, the avenger. Foes, enemy, and avenger. If we have Genesis 1 and 2 in view in verse 1 about God creating the heavens and the earth, in verse 2 we have Genesis 3 already in mind as well when Satan tempted Adam and Eve away from obedience to God and plunged this entire human race into sin. And we followed our captain Adam and we don't just sin like Adam, we sinned in Adam because he was the captain, he took the coin toss, we took the, um, the implications of everything that he chose so that we are fallen, broken, darkened, and we need help. Creation in verse 1, redemption again shows up here in verse 2. So there are enemies to this great God. And we don't understand the mystery of where did Satan come from, of why would Adam sin? It was absolutely stupid for him to do that. But in all that mystery, for reasons that are known only to Adam's self, Adam sinned and plunged us into this misery. Well, God is so great that out of the mouths of tiny little babies and infants, he has established his strength against foes, adversaries, and enemies. So Israel is these little babies. Israel is the tiniest of nations. Israel has been a bunch of slaves, and yet God is going to bless all the nations of the earth in Israel? How can that be? But that's what he promised to Abraham, repeated it to Isaac, repeated it to Jacob, and repeated it to Moses in Exodus 19, that you are going to be my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and you will mediate the knowledge of the one true God to all the nations of the earth. That's your mission. Their great commission in Exodus 19 is our great commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. So that's what we're supposed to be about. Now, God, uh, Jesus is going to use that verse. Many of you know that. That uh, out of the mouths of babes, he has uh, ordained praise, not strength. What's going on with that? Well, that's a translational decision. The NIV has praise, and the uh, Hebrew, uh, the ESV thinks the Hebrew means strength. A compromise could be that the kind of strength is the strength that is extolled in song, and that's what Jesus has in mind in Matthew 21, 16, when he quotes Psalm 8 to tell the Pharisees and the scribes and the Jewish leaders, hey, look, you want me to stop these kids from singing Hosanna, praise to the son of David. Great David's greater son is entering Jerusalem. This is the culmination of the prophets for century upon century. Master, rabbi, shut up your disciples. If I shut them up, the, the very stones are going to cry out. 
because they're right. And out of the mouths of little ones, babies and infants, God has ordained praise. Out of little Israel, God has ordained praise against all of the nations so that it'll be out of the weakness of God that his strength will be made known. 1 Corinthians 2 talks about the silliness of the gospel message to Jews and Greeks, but God uses the weak things of this world to confound the things that are strong. And that's exactly what he's doing here. So we start with this divine majesty, and we see it in these three couplets. Now we move to human dignity in verses 3 through 8. And the first couplet that we encounter there is between realms, the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. We've already talked of heaven and earth, but in verse 3, we read that when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what's man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? There are two realms. There's a heavenly realm where the moon and the stars dwell, and then there's an earthly realm. And he'll get to that, but he's not really um, there yet. He's concentrating on that heavenly realm. He gets to the earthly realm um, in verse 6. You've given to human beings dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under him, and now the things that are described in 7 and 8 are earthly, sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field. So domestic and wild livestock who live on the earth, on terra firma, birds that dwell in the heavens, fish that dwell in the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So other sea creatures, mammals in the sea, crustaceans in the sea. So heavenly realm, earthly realm, both are in view in this psalm. But when he starts with that heavenly realm, he's overwhelmed. Like, God, as I get out my telescope, well, he didn't have a telescope. Have you ever sat on a mountainside or an open area on a clear, crisp, summer evening. I know clear and crisp and summer don't go together well in Memphis, but at night, it might go down a little bit. In the desert, it would definitely go down a lot. You'd have a clear sky and you'd look up and you'd just in awe of what's out there. Or you think about Castaway, you know, when he's out adrift in the midst of the ocean and there are no light pollution sources and just stars everywhere. Or you think of uh, the Lion King, when Pumbaa and Timbaa and those guys are out there sitting on the hillside looking up at the stars and just wondering about huge thoughts. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. The firmament is declaring his handiwork. So that's what David's doing. Maybe he's keeping his sheep and his youth and he's out there on the hillside and he's just thinking, wow, when I look at that, what is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take any understanding or knowledge of him? It's we're nothing. We're specks of dust in this vast universe. We're one planet among how many? We don't even know how many galaxies. How many, it, just, it boggles the mind. And to think that we have some significance, is that just unbelievable speciesism that we think our species is greater than others? But it would be if it weren't for Genesis 1 and 2 telling us that God created the heavens and the earth. So we recognize that there's... There's more there, that God's doing something. So amazingly, with How Great Thou Art, uh, I'm so glad we sang that. I want you to think of different words. And we're not singing it. God is singing it this time. And this might be the way that hymn would go, in the lips of God. Adam, my son, 
When I in loving planning consider all the works my hands have made, I see the earth and myriad spheres asunder, land, sky, and sea, your rule in all displayed. Then sings my soul, my image true to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my image true to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. I heard somebody's heresy meter go off at that point. Uh, it did, that did seem a little bit out there. Really? No, God's going to say how great we are, how great we are. That's exactly what God says in Psalm 8. How great we are. You are my true image. I created you in the image of God. You have inherent worth and dignity. Do not let anyone tell you you are junk. You are cosmic dust blown throughout the universe with no significance. You're a speck of sand on the seashore that could be defecated on by a dog passing by. You are nothing. That's not true. You are created in the image of God, and he loves you. When I look at the heavens, the work of your hands, the moon, the stars, and I'm just in awe, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you take any knowledge of him at all? The psalm, at its heart, is trying to create within us absolute amazement that we could fill the thoughts of Almighty God, who has all of the rest of this creation of the heavens, just the heavens by themselves, but then throw in the earth. He thinks about you. He thinks about me. Psalm 139, that talks so about his intricate, detailed creation of each human being ends with, and how precious are your thoughts to me, O Lord my God, that you think about us. It's incredible. Um, quickly, within human dignity as well. There's a contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam. What is man that you are mindful of him? What is the son of man that you take thought of him? Man, son of man. Synonyms, yes, somewhat. Son of man can be used merely of human being. We see it used that way particularly when God refers to Ezekiel. He says, son of man, stand up, prophesy. Son of man, do this. Son of man, do that. In that context in Ezekiel, it means pea brain. Come here, I want to tell you something more. Pea brain. You are tiny little pea brain, but you're my pea brain. And that tiny little pea brain is still much grander than any other created thing earth, sky, or sea. So he puts Ezekiel in his place and amazes him with the transcendence of God and the pictures of God that are given in Ezekiel 1 and 2. But son of man, he's speaking of him as a human. But that's not the main and chief use. The main and chief use of son of man is clearly that by Jesus when he refers to himself by that title 80-something times in the Gospels, more than in any other title he uses, he prefers son of man because Messiah had a whole lot of baggage with it that was incorrect. Others 
uh, son of David that he allowed people to call him. But again, that had messianic connotations. So he preferred son of man. But he wasn't getting it from Ezekiel. He was getting that from Daniel chapter 7 where one like the son of man appears before the ancient of days and receives sovereign authority and power. It is great David's greater son that is in view in Daniel chapter 7. And so Jesus is not at all claiming I'm I'm a mere pea brain. I'm just the son of man. I'm just this poor pitiful human. No, I am the son of man. I am the one that Daniel saw. I am the Messiah who is to come. But it was shrouded in a little bit more uncertainty so that he could have his ministry here without totally being thrown out from the crowds. So great David's greater son is in view here, even in that title, son of man, and in being that great king who will never end. Created and crowned. Those are the two things that we're told about man, son of man. First thing, you have made him. Second thing, you have given him dominion. So you've made him a little lower than the angels, the heavenly beings. You've crowned him with glory and honor. We are created and we are crowned, both. And that's incredible that God would create us. Yeah, well, he created jellyfish too, you know, just kind of blob along there. So no big deal, you might say. No, but he created us and then he crowned us with glory and honor and set us up as his vice regents over planet Earth. Finally, dominion and dominions is a couplet that we find here. That you have given him dominion, in verse 6, over all the works of your hands. You have put all things under him. And then different dominions are mentioned. Earth, sky, sea. Or again, reflecting the order of creation in Genesis chapter 1. Over all of these dominions, human beings reign supreme. Think of your own life. You have dominion over your life, but your life has different spheres or different dominions. You have a physical life. You have a spiritual life. You have a social life. You have um, a financial life. So you have an intellectual life. Which area of that part of, of your life is out of control? You're not exercising dominion as God intended it to be there. Well, This psalm is a strong exhortation to us to stand up straighter, take deeper breaths, look people in the eye, look animals in the eye, look everyone in the eye and realize I have inherent worth and dignity because God does not make any junk. I am somebody. I am a man. You can say 50 years ago in Memphis in February if you're a sanitation worker or in 2018 and you're old and retired, and you don't think you have any worth anymore because I'm not doing the job that I did so well. Nobody here even knows what I did in my job. I don't get any recognition. I'm old and tired. I can't do what I once did physically. I can't do I don't have much money left. I'm not able to impress anybody with all that. I guess I'm pretty much a nobody. No, you're not. You are created in the image of God, crowned with honor and glory, And he intends for you to exercise dominion over yourself, over your family still. You can still have a tremendous impact on your family, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. You can still have an incredible impact on this church, your particular CC within it or your church, wherever that is. You can have a huge impact. Don't let the devil lie to you and say that you don't have any worth and dignity anymore. You do. And then we close with divine majesty and just three words that we can stop with. O Lord, our Lord, 
How majestic is your name in all the earth. Our Lord. Can we all say that? Agree with it? Is he our Lord? Jesus is our Lord. It's personal with me. It's not just abstract theological. No, it's personal with me. Then that's, that's a good thing. That's the way the psalm ends. It's personal. It's not just abstract theology. It's personal. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. So to take the opposite problem from that retired person wondering about his worth and his self-image and everything, let's go the other way with the person who maybe thinks a little too highly of himself and whose name is that person living for. Maybe younger guys in the early part of your career, I'm going to make a name for myself. Make a name for God. Do what you do to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Make God famous, not because you're talking about him all the time in inappropriate and offensive ways, but because you're doing a great job, an excellent job. You're treating other people at your workplace with dignity and respect. You're being patient with them. You're not acting like I'm the brightest mind in the room. I can't believe these dunderheads that I got to work with. No, you're showing patience, kindness, deferring to others, all the way from the sanitation worker in your office to the CEO, you don't brown nose one and ignore the other. No, I'm going to bring glory to God. Thy, hallowed be thy name, not my name, thy name. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In all the earth. What part of my little sphere of influence in this planet is out of his control, is not bringing him glory, and he's not receiving his majesty, then that's an application for you, for me, for today. The discussion questions will guide you further toward that. So let's stop and let's pray that these discussion questions will lead us to personal applications so that we're not just doers of this word, but we're hearers also. Let's pray. High, holy, majestic, glorious God, our Father. We bow now and we pray that you would take our study of this psalm out of the abstract and into the concrete and the practical, out of mere words and into action. Lord, we don't want to rush too quickly toward that. We do want to think high and holy and worthy thoughts of you. But may those thoughts translate themselves into actions that bring you glory and honor so that your name is hallowed and your will is done and your kingdom comes on earth, even as in heaven. For those realms are yours, both heaven and earth. Use us in some small way as your image bearers, even as we rejoice in the second captain, the second Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ, who took the coin toss and instead of saying, my will be done, he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done and gave himself up for us on the cross. May he receive eternal glory and praise and a weight of honor. And we can't think of any other name higher, so we pray in his name. And all God's people said, amen.